This week on The Veterinary Viewfinder. Are rescue requirements getting ridiculous? You want to stick around for this one. Welcome back to The Veterinary Viewfinder, the podcast that tackles the toughest topics in veterinary medicine. And this week, we are going to tackle the topic of our rescue organization's requirements inadvertently pushing people to breeders and other ways of acquiring pets instead of rescuing them. This is going to be a really interesting topic. But before we get into all of that, as always, I am your host, Dr. Ernie Ward. I'm Dr. Cindy Courtney. And I'm registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. And Becky, you sort of started this discussion amongst (laughs) us, and then you took it to social media. But maybe for our audience who hasn't been following us on social media around this topic, set it up. Okay, so... The backstory here is I'm in occupational therapy for a broken finger. That's a podcast in itself, and we know better with leashes than I do. But here I am talking to my occupational therapist, and she's asking about my job and how I work in some animal rescue types and shared a story of frustration of because she asked me specifically, what do you guys do with all these dogs once they're rescued? And I said, well, you know, most of them go to placement agencies, and they go on to get happy homes, and they live with their family. And she shared a story of trying to adopt a dog when she wanted a small dog and um, was getting denied for the fencing issue at her house. She didn't have a fence. And um, she was even willing to put the fence up, but her homeowners association would only allow a certain type of fence being like the the black wrought iron standing fencing. And she's like, this dog is so little, he would go right through the fence. So it was completely redundant requirement. Um, And she frustratedly said, you know, I walk my dog several times a day on a leash and anyway, got denied. Her, her, Her way of dealing with this was she went to a breeder and asked for a retired female and she felt like, that was as, as close as she could get to, to rescuing um, because she was getting denied by these rescue groups. And this is not the first time I heard this story of people being denied by rescue groups. So I turned to social media and asked for stories from people like, were they experiencing this? Have they seen this? I know a lot of people in the veterinary industry work with rescues through their hospitals. So were they seeing this? And you guys, it blew up. <laughs> it blew up. So tell us some of the common like comments, because again, if you're listening, these are our, our colleagues. I mean, this, this isn't just like random public. I mean, Becky was really soliciting veterinary professionals. So tell us some of the, the common obstacles and challenges that they had encountered when trying to rescue a dog or cat from a rescue organization. Right. So everyone on my personal Facebook is in the veterinary industry, uh, the Marine Corps or animal rescue of some kind or another. It's the only people I know. And I had people from the veterinary industry and then some, you know, people who have tried to rescue outside of the industry and hands down across the board. What I heard was I got denied. I got denied. It was a fifteen hundred dollar adoption fee. Uh, They wouldn't approve me because of offense. I heard crazy things literally like I was denied for a cat because I wasn't going to be home for more than nine hours a day. I worked more than nine hours a day. And that was too long for my cat to be alone. There was another organization that would deny someone because for a dog, for a greyhound, because they were gone more than five hours a day. And that was too long to be gone for their dog. I was really astounded at the criteria that were put in place and the stories that were coming back. And more importantly, what I was also hearing was the emotional effect that it was having by being denied. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, Cindy, let's let's take this now just one step backwards. As a veterinarian, 
you know, you're hearing some of these requirements, be it fencing, be it time devoted, you know, be resources. I mean, these protections come from a good place, right? Yeah. And there's a part of it in me, you guys know me, I like to play professional devil's advocate sometimes. And there is a part of me that wonders, were these across the board requirements of these rescue agencies or were these requirements for very specific animals? Because certainly I can think of specific situations where an animal has particularly bad separation anxiety. Uh, an animal is difficult with children. A lot of the people responded with comments about, well, I had two grandchildren that came to visit and so I was denied because of that. So I can see how in specific situations those things could become problems but across the board, it, it, obviously, I think it's going to start limiting the ability of these animals to find homes. You're, you're absolutely right. And I think the organizations that seem to have successful adoptions and the people that I know that work with organizations that do have successful adoption, adoptions, we're taking things on a case-by-case -case basis. And I, think any, I don't think anyone here would really argue that that's probably the best way to go. Mm -hmm. But a lot of these, I got the impression, were across the board rules no matter what. And I found it really interesting. Well, and I'll tell you too, just from a personal experience, and I'd love to hear what our listeners, if they've heard things like this or experienced things like, like I'm about to share. But, you know, uh, I work with a lot of different organizations, rescues, fosters, and so forth. And over the years, I've encountered this sort of scenario, Cindy, and it goes like this. You want to adopt this dog or rescue this dog that's in a foster home. So you go to the foster home to visit it, right? And the foster family is sort of assessing you. And at the end of this experience, the potential adopter feels like everything was great. They love the dog. They love the people, blah, blah, blah. But the foster family says, I don't really like those people. And they're denied. Have you ever heard those kind of almost personality conflict issues? You know, I haven't personally, what I have heard of quite a lot is of foster families who bring an animal into their home and then have a very hard time letting go of that foster <laughs> right. animal. That's what I'm getting at, Cindy. That's right. what I'm getting at. <laughs> so, so they're coming up with sort of this excuse, like, I don't know, I just didn't like the way she handled the dog. You know, I, that's the kind of stuff I hear. Yeah, it makes me think of some of those psychological studies where if you give someone a $5 cup and then you ask them how much right, money right. they need to sell the cup to somebody else, then they want to demand like $7 or $9. Right. It's like the standards, once something feels like yours, you have much higher standards for kind of the new, the new place it needs to go to. So I wonder if there's a little bit of that effect. Well, and Becky, this is, that's a great jumping off point for my next question to you. Okay. What I have also encountered is a wide variation in these requirements by rescue and foster groups. I mean, what are we doing or how can we help promote sort of a standardization? I know that's terribly unfair, but you know what I'm saying? Like some places are like, it's all about the fence. It's all about the backyard. Some places it's all about how many hours do you have or how much money do you have, right? I mean, how do we sort of come to some consensus on this stuff? Oh, I, I think that's such a, I mean, it's a great question, but I, my, the first thing that came to my head when I was, when I was reading through these comments was who is making these rules? Right. Like right. who right. thinks your cat has a problem with you being gone nine hours a day? Not mine. My cat's <laughs> like, what are you doing home? I just start, the party Believe just me got alone. started. Right. right? So I, I got really interested in where these rules were coming from. And I was thinking, Dr. Ward, of your book, Chowhounds, especially with this rule about fencing, because right. we, we know that 
we have this myth that, oh, I can get a dog once I have a fence, because once I have a fence, then that dog will have an adequate amount of exercise because it can go out into the fence yard and it can get all the exercise it needs. Total can, myth. Can you kind of address that with our audience a little? Yeah. So, so one of the things that we talk about in Chowhounds is this, this myth of the backyard exercise, the, the sort of self-directed exercise of dogs. And, and early in my career, I set up a, a simple test, which I would just give clients a video camera. I had a, a simple old you know, VHSC video camera and it would run for you know an hour and a half or whatever. And we just put it in the back porch and watch what their dog did after they let it out and went to work. And of course, the dog ran around and they saw that and they went to work and the dog just laid there for the rest of the day. So again, the myth of the backyard is going to be an exercise self-directed portal. Not going to happen. False. Yes. And Chowhounds got a shout out on this thread by Dr. Cindy, who I immediately thought, <laughs> of course, she had a book to reference. Even in this very <laughs> situation, <laughs> we had a book reference. I, I loved the predictability of it. And she's so right, though, because as a veterinary technician, I am embarrassed to say, but if you ask me if any one of my dogs had diarrhea, I would literally respond to you. I don't know. I have a fenced in yard and they go and they do what they want out there. And I'm not as up and up. Whereas people who are walking their dogs multiple times a day, they know of all of the changes that they have. They know if they've gotten into something on the walk. I mean, they have so right. much more information for me. They're more informed pet owners most of the time. And that's a really good point because I don't think that the fence in and of itself is an indicator or signal of your ability to be be the best pet parent in the world, right? Just having a fence doesn't mean you're going to, as Becky said, be attentive, take them for walks and exercise and interaction. So the fence is important as far as security, but there are a lot of people that live in urban settings and apartments and condos that don't have any fenced access and they are amazing pet parents. Absolutely. And we know that 40 minutes of walking a day is actually mentally healthy for the pet, that pets that get that or dogs that get that are able to have a mentally healthier life and are less likely to have or develop behavioral problems. So I think it kind of circles back to that original question is, who is helping them write these guidelines? Um, I'm really curious to reach out to the, the shelter vet community and see how many of them are involved in essentially creating best standards as to what kind of guidelines should there be? Okay, and so now you bring up the next really great important point, Dr. Cindy, is when we had this conversation and in my head this whole time, I was thinking, what about the shelter pets? And everyone who weighed in on this thread on my Facebook that had positive experiences, really they came from a, a shelter most of the time. They walked into the shelter, they found a dog that they love. Now, for me, my first thought was, oh, but we don't get as much of the behavioral backgrounds and histories and, and do we have as, as much of a successful adoption long-term? Well, I can tell you from my very brief Facebook study, actually they do because uh, there's a story on there of, of somebody who walked into the shelter wanting one dog and they talked a little bit and did some counseling, um, adoption counseling and found out they didn't really think that dog was gonna be the best dog for them due to, just like you had mentioned, potential separation anxiety introduce them to another dog in the shelter and it's been a long, healthy, happy relationship. And there was two or three of those that happened, but they came directly from the shelter as opposed to these rescues. Well, and that really sells the point home about these are motivated pet parents. These are people that are actually trying to do the right thing. And, you know, as I'm sitting here listening to this, I'm going, you know, there are a whole lot of people that do walk into shelters all across the country that you're like, I don't know if they're ready. Right. I don't know if they actually have the means to provide the best care for that that particular dog or cat or whatever. So, you know, what we're talking about primarily are people that are like, yeah, I want to do the right thing. And are we somehow inadvertently biasing the system against them? That's the frightening part. 
Yeah. And it seems to be certain groups that may be classified as less able or to, to care for animals in general. I don't know about you, Becky, but, but back in the day when I worked in a pet store kind of before I had that enlightened moment about where pet store puppies are coming from, we had a lot of people come in who had a military background because they were being flatly denied getting an animal from a rescue. And it sounded like from the thread that a lot of veterinary professionals were actually being denied getting animals because they spent so long at work. And sometimes even in the face of being able to bring their animals to work with them, which I found surprising. Yeah, Becky, speak to some of that because there were some stories that were heartbreaking. Right. I mean, and, and that's exactly right. People were really getting their hearts broken. And, and, and some of this was really frustrating. So um, uh, one girl that I worked with talked about not not being able to take a, a dog or to rescue a dog from a rescue organization because she was planning to take it to work. The dog had a very um, apparent fear of veterinarians. And she worked at a veterinary hospital and said, oh, but we could totally desensitize that. And they said that would basically be traumatic for the dog. And she was not allowed to take it. She was denied wow. a golden retriever because she had a four-foot fence instead of a six-foot fence, which wow. I, I, I think is really, really sad. Um, there was, again, so often these stories that I had my heart broken. Um, one I thought was interesting was somebody couldn't adopt a cat because they lived in an apartment, which seems like you would be able to adopt a cat in an apartment. Absolutely. Um, and it was a special needs cat. And, and she worked at a veterinary hospital, and she was going to be able to provide all the care that this special needs cat needed. And it wasn't uh, wasn't an, an approved application. And for so many people, this is heartbreaking. And they say basically, I'll never I'll never go back to a rescue again. It, they still stick with the shelter in a lot of cases, but in, in so many of these cases, they're ending up going to a breeder. Um, and it circles back to breed specific rescues. And I don't want to pick on any one organization here. And I am by no means an expert in this area. And that's why I was asking these questions because I think they're interesting questions. One of the top areas people were having trouble was with placements specifically were breed-specific rescues. Well, and, and I tell you, this again speaks to the importance of organized veterinary medicine because, you know, Cindy, as far as when I'm listening to this, I'm kind of going, you know, I never thought about it. There really isn't this universal best mm -hmm. practices or suggestions or guidelines. This is a beautiful place for the AVMA to weigh in and just say, hey, here's some things, you know, we've, we've worked with the ASVB, you know, the Society of Veterinary Behaviorists, I mean, whomever is appropriate, but we got together and we actually, here are the, the things you should look for when it comes to rescue. Absolutely, absolutely. And and this is not a new problem. There's a wonderful blog article that some of our listeners may have come across by Julie Leroy that is called, you know, I rejected the wrong family in rescue, where you know, she talks about a family that looked really, really great on paper, who ended up returning uh, the dog that they sent home. And it was the family that you know, initially to her eyes didn't seem like it was going to be an appropriate family that ended up being uh, the right family for this pet and ended up being its forever home. So so yeah. I do think it's it's interesting. It's always challenging when we're trying to get this idea of, of who people are and to, to make judgments on them for sure. You make it's such a good point and it's such an emotional factor because what we know is, well, me, for example, I have a house full of foster fails. <laughs> no one will love them as much as me. I just know that as soon as they get in my home. And I now know that I can't take a dog um, with the intentions of fostering it 
The only time I was successful is when I did it as a military family foster, which they have some amazing programs. So if you're interested in fostering, but you know that you'll want to keep them, I definitely um, would shout out those programs where you foster while they're deployed makes it a little bit easier. <laughs> but these people really do care about these animals and they, and they do believe that. But we also know that there are unhealthy ways that people end up um, loving and caring for these animals. And one thing that stands out to me in these cases is when I was early in my veterinary technician career, there was a rescue that used to come into our practice who was known for not out adopting out the animals. People regularly talked about how she just denied people and she, she didn't really want to get rid of them. This is ultimately a person who the ASPCA went in and found a hoarding situation and pulled more than 700 animals out of her house yeah, eventually. Yeah, yeah. And so the fear here for me is when there isn't some kind of regulation, there isn't accountability for turnover, um, are we basically providing nonprofit hoarding situations in some cases. Well, Becky, you and I have, have spoken about this multiple times working with HSUS and ASPCA. We see this all the time. A lot of hoarders do go to shelters. You know, they, they in their mind, they have the belief that they're saving and helping, but of course they're putting these animals in deplorable conditions. But I do want to touch on one thing too that, that might be at play here, Cindy. And that is, are these rescue organizations, maybe it's appropriate to say no, are they saying no and delivering the bad news in a way that is now sort of fostering ill will? And I think that's a, a really good point because Becky was talking about the heartbreak of these situations and expectations are so important, especially if you already have your heart set on an animal. Are you going through this whole long process and, and they already know that if you don't have X, Y, or Z, that there's no way that you're going to be able to have this pet. Um, it, it would be really nice, I'm sure, especially before you have a chance to meet that animal, that those things are made really, really clear. Yes, yes. Because then you don't necessarily have a, a chance to form this really strong bond with an animal only to have your heart broken. Right. And this is where I think sort of having published guidelines, best practices mm -hmm. could be super helpful because let's say that you're a... Border Terrier Rescue Organization, which of course, mm -hmm. Border Terriers are the greatest dogs on the planet. And you want to rescue one of these amazing dogs. And, you know, I think that maybe before you even start the process of being interviewed or meeting a dog or whatever, like you said, Cindy, just send them a checklist and say, do you have X, Y, and Z? And hopefully this is some type of universal, you know, you can tweak it for your Border Terrier because we all know that Border Terriers are very unique and demanding. Uh, but you, you get my point, right? I mean, why, why isn't that happening more frequently? Yeah. And I think one thing also about those guidelines is they should essentially be good animal care guidelines. And, and right. that's something that would be helpful for all of us. One thing I felt really strongly for a number of years is something that we all should have is a backup plan for our animals. Um, you know, when I had my son, part of having a, a human child is that you figure out what should happen to your child should anything happen to you. You know, right. you, as part of that process, reach out to family members, reach out to friends, write a will where you say, God forbid something were to happen to me, this is who should take care of my child. And I always thought it was kind of strange that we didn't have any planning like that in place for most of our animals. Because one, still there's something that could happen to us. We could pass away and our animals could need care. But also we know that things like you know, extreme poverty, where then we can't live someplace where our pets can get taken care of can happen. Severe allergies in a child can happen. Like there are certain situations where genuinely we cannot have our own animals in our home anymore. And it's heartbreaking. 
But perhaps it's less heartbreaking if we do have a backup plan in place and we say, this is essentially our pet's godparent who can help take care of them. God forbid anything were to happen to me. And I think that might encourage a lot more responsible pet ownership because to some degree, then your friends and family have to say like, okay, I'm, I'm taking, I think this is a good bet that you are going to have, uh, take really good care of this animal and you're not going to abandon them unless it is something really serious. Oh, you know, but what I'm sitting here thinking while you're saying that you're absolutely right is like, to me, that's a more valid and pertinent question on an adoption application than do you have a six foot foot fence for this four pound chihuahua that you would like to adopt. And so I think it circles back nicely to there are things that we can be doing and encouraging for responsible pet ownership that's really more important in 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 the long term guidelines for these rescues and and I agree I would love to see um you know more validity and more kind of universal standards uh, across the board but then also tailoring it to the individual dogs the best that we can of course we know there are dogs that are going to be more prone to fence jumping or digging or separation anxiety and I think it just really comes down to great adoption counseling great pre interviews and great counseling of families because. Um, for those of us who have online dated, we know that a picture does not always depict what you what you get and how well you get along. Um, so while we know there are really cool websites out there, you can kind of flip through and get an idea of the available dogs. Um, it's really important to meet them and meet the people who know them. And I, I don't know, I love this topic and I think it's really important and I love that we're delving into that. And I think, again, to this expectations point and what Dr. Ward talked about, um, some of those those websites like PetFinder, they do highlight, you know, does this pet have a known issue with children? Does this pet have a known issue with other animals? So, so it, I guess, again, I think it should be at least able to give some initial indication to these families before they look to adopt. Like if I'm going and looking at a dog and it says, this pet is bad with kids, I, I want to know that if I have a, you know, one and a half year old son at home from the get-go so I don't fall in love before I find out that particular piece of information. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you're listening today and and you have a story to share, we really want to hear it. So definitely check out our Facebook page. You can hit us on Instagram, Twitter, um, but we'd love to hear your stories on Facebook for sure. This is a, a very important topic. It is. And I think at the end of the day, it comes down to my my very own father's wise words on the Facebook post was at the end of the day, their dog, their rules. And until there is some kind of change in the conversation, I think he's exactly right. And I still hope people encourage rescue. And I think within your practice, I'd love to hear how are you helping people match up with dogs when it comes time for your client who maybe put a dog down a few months ago and is looking for one? How do you help match them up? And who are the rescues in your area that are really doing it right? And how do they do it right? And if you do any rescue in your own practice, how do you make sure that you do it right? If you do end up um, having a pet turned over to you, especially for medical reasons, um, saw a meme the other day about a practice that adopted or took a dog on um, relinquishment, and that dog ended up going to the uh, family member of one of the employees, and that got out and uh, was creating quite a stir and a lot of angst amongst pet owners. Uh, So how are we doing rescue within our own practices in a right way and an ethical way. Yeah. And there, I know there are a lot of clinics out there doing that. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's yep. wonderful work when you can take a, a pet in that needs more care than the family can provide or the Good Samaritan who found it can pro- provide. But you're right. How is that adoption process look? Um, and from liability, I think it's all very interesting. And I, this yeah. has been so interesting. I, I love this topic. 
Yeah. And last year I did a video, uh, why don't we do it for free? Something like that. in which I talk about Cindy, that exact scenario, that relinquishment. And then it, the, the community finds out that actually the vet took it and gave it to a staff member or themselves or whatever. And then yeah. bad things happen. So yeah, yeah, yeah. These, these are tricky. But, but before we finish this conversation today, let's then talk about, okay, if you are refused from a particular rescue group, what should your next step be? You're right. And I think part of it is doing your homework before you start. You know, I, I don't recommend just, again, going that singles uh, doggy tender route of just flipping through dogs and falling in love at first sight. I would do some research on the organization that you're working with. What are their adoption turnover rates? How many dogs are they taking into how many they're putting out and get some information about the the program that you're going to be working with in the first place, because, you know, you want your money to be going to the right place. You want someone that's going to provide you support on both ends. There was a story on Facebook that talked about um, uh, one of my friends who did manage to adopt from a rescue who was really hard to get. They did multiple home interviews. It was so much work to get her dog. She finally got her dog. And when she had some follow-up questions, there was nobody on the other end of the phone. No one would call her back. So make sure you're working with the right organization on the front end. If you think you are and you get denied and and it comes time, I I do encourage you to, again, resource with people who you know who have rescued, um, find organizations that work. But I also think check with your local shelter. I think checking with your shelter is really important. Um, I had multiple people tell me that they went and they had several visits visits with the pet. They held the pet for a few days so that the family could come back and meet them a few times and take them outside and play with them and introduce to their other dog. You know, a shelter shouldn't be trying to push you out a door with an animal the second you get in there, but they should be willing to work with you a little bit if you're showing a genuine interest. But your your local shelters are so in need of your support mm-hmm. and so in need because they're bringing in dogs no matter what. They take them all in, they take good care of them, and they give them the best that they can give them until they can't anymore or they get adopted. Right. And I will say this, having, you know actually begun my veterinary career when I stopped, you know, when I was working at a vet clinic and then going straight to work for HSUS in college uh, at a large shelter. Um, People are fearful of walking into the shelter because of this. I want to take them all home, right? And so I think it's that overwhelming selection sometimes uh, and that impending guilt that leads people to say, I'd rather just go meet one dog. And then if it works, it works, right? So if you're listening today, don't forget to counsel your clients about going to the shelters. I am and forever will be the animal shelter shelter advocate, because I think that should be kind of our first stop, if you will. Now, if you have a specific breed in mind and you're all about border terriers, that's a whole nother thing. But, you know, the reality is don't give up on shelters. One interesting thing, you know, as I was reading through these comments yesterday, I, I started to think, a lot of these organizations seem to always be looking for fosters. And with it being so difficult to adopt, it almost seems like it's almost easier to foster a dog for these organizations. Um, I think there's a less rigorous process or, or even if there isn't, how are we getting fosters with this kind of rigorous process? And how do they combine those expectations between adoption and fostering? Because it almost seems easier to foster sometimes than actually to adopt from these organizations. Wow. And you you may be right, Becky. It does seem like it's easier to be accepted as a foster pet parent than it is to actually go and become a real pet parent. Wow. Yeah. So it's clear that there are a lot of issues at stake here um, and that some of the first steps are having some clearer guidelines about what is and isn't medically validated 
in terms of getting these animals to a good home so that and then setting expectations really clearly so that before you fall in love with a particular animal you have a pretty good idea of whether or not you're going to be a good candidate to take them home well you heard what we have to say now we want to hear from you Please share your stories around this, your opinions, your advice, because this is a topic that affects us all. And I think it may be more pervasive and even divisive than we'd like to think. We'd love to see pictures of your rescue animals. Go ahead and share those with us on Instagram at Veterinary Viewfinder. You can also reach out to us on Veterinary Viewfinder on Facebook and share your stories with us. We'd love to hear reviews from you guys. Sometimes people ask us what the favorite episodes are of the podcast. So you can let us know what your favorites are in the reviews and uh, help people find, find the best ones out there. And a quick shout out to everybody who is working in rescues and fostering and caring yeah. for animals that aren't theirs. You guys are doing amazing work. We appreciate what you do. And we just want to get to the bottom of getting all animals, happy, healthy, loving homes for the rest of their life. Don't forget to click to subscribe so you don't miss one great episode of the Veterinary Viewfinder. And as always, adopt, don't shop. Bye. Bye. Bye.